Hey everyone, it is Richard Harris and my friend Scott Lease. We are here for the next episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are grateful, very grateful for this guest. Um, we've gotten to know him a lot over the last few years. Um, he's one of those people that you sort of see go through the sales and startup world and then come out the other side with a, with a I'll call it a massive exit, and then doesn't just sort of walk away, but he now gives it back, and he's he's a part of uh, Emergence Capital. So, Doug Landis, please welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Thanks, guys. Good to have you guys too, or good to participate, or be uh, whatever. Yeah. Good to be here. Um, I will oh, say oh, this because okay. the reason why I got my brain uh, wrapped around the axle there for a minute is because you said for a few years now, like Richard, I was trying to remember back to when we first met. And and I think it's been more than just a few years. So just want to correct you on Has that. It it's been, it's been a, I think it's been a handful. Oh, it might be. Wow. I mean, that, that's true. It has been a handful of years. I, I've forgotten about that since that, that first meeting we had down in uh, Soma. So, well, thank you for, for joining us because um, we know you're a busy guy. We know the VC world's a very busy world. But before we get into that, and I know we're going to talk about VCs specifically, where's Doug Landis from? Like, you know, if you don't know, Doug was a very instrumental at Box and growing them and helping them um, reach their amazing exit. It's now part of the VC culture with Emergence. But where was Doug before Box and before yeah. that? Like, like what, was, what was early Doug like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's my own personal narrative? Is that the question? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Narrative is a big subject of mine right now. Um, it's a hot topic. Um, my, I actually grew up in Palo Alto. I'm a Bay Area kid, which is crazy enough, but I've lived all over the world, Singapore, Australia, uh, Seattle, New York. Um, and, um, funny enough, when I came back to the Bay Area after going to college, uh, I came back and I, I took a job at Oracle. So I've been out in the field selling products that were outside of typical software and, and SaaS. And so, you know, when you come, when you change the industries, you kind of have to go all the way down the bottom. So the irony is I was in the field doing huge deals with major retail brands and I decided to get into technology because I grew up here. And so I came back to Oracle after already being out in the field for four years and I had to become an SDR. It was awesome. And we had to make a hundred calls a day and I met some of my favorite people in the world during that time. Um, whether it's, you know, with Erica Schultz, we used to sit next to each other. Bob Fratty and I sat next to each other from Slack. Um, you know, uh, gosh, the list of people who we collaborated with while, during that time as SDRs, Nancy Camera from sales. I mean, like, just the list goes on and on and on. Um, but we were pounding the phones and we were worried that we were going to get fired if we didn't make a hundred calls. So, um, you know, arguably I would say that's where I kind of like, <laughs> I, I kind of sharpened my saw, if you will, in terms of, of, of how to build that, that velocity motion. <clears throat> Fortunately, I, I elevated rather quickly because I had already had so much sales experience. Um, I left Oracle, started my own technology company, didn't went through that process. It failed miserably, um, but raised capital, et cetera. So I started getting a bug, a crazy bug in the, in the, in the software world. Um, so eventually I went to go work at Google um, and my job at Google, after selling software, I realized that I, re I got more, I got more, fire in my belly from helping other people realize more of their own potential. Um, I could sell. I love selling. I'm a salesperson at heart. I always will be. It's in my blood. It's in my DNA. But honestly, I like helping other sales people excel. That to me is so much more interesting. Um, 
and it's also more about being a service to other people versus being super selfish, which, you know, being in sales can actually really drive you to being super selfish. Um, so I went to go work for Google. I ran all their sales training and development. But the interesting thing was for the first time, instead of being part of like L&D, we were actually part of sales. So I ran up to, I rolled up to Tim Armstrong at the time who ran all Google sales. This is in the early days. Um, I left after about a year and a half, largely because Google is an engineering driven company and they don't really give a shit about salespeople, or at least they didn't at the time. They do now. Clearly they have to, everybody does. Uh, but they're just like, dude, it's Google. You pick up the phone and say you're with Google and you'll get a meeting, which is largely true. Um, and I got a phone call from my, my friends over at Salesforce. And, and so I jumped ship and went over there and helped. Uh, so my good buddy, Brian Breckenridge kind of built the first, uh, him and Nate Bride built the first like onboarding program there. And I came in, took that and exploded it to, you know, was there for five years and went from 900 employees to when I left, there was 16,000. Um, they all came through our onboarding program. We built everything from beyond that. So Box came, it's funny enough, I went to go present to Box on how Salesforce uses Salesforce. And the entire Box executive team was there, including Aaron. And afterwards, uh, I had a little side conversation with him. And he's like, cool, so why don't you come work for us? <laughs> and do everything that you did there here. And uh, I had some friends that were over there too at the time. Um, super how, early. how big was Box at that point? How big were they? They were like 250 employees. Okay. Maybe. They, they were established. They were established. Aaron definitely was established. And, and, and their go-to-market was established. They had already pivoted from being the B2C solution, like Dropbox was. And they had pivoted to be this B2B solution. But they, and they had just maybe had their first couple of enterprise hires um, in place. Uh, and so we were, it was still early, still super early. Um, we had to figure out how to go tackle the enterprise and how to move everybody up market and how to transition people from roles to roles to roles, which is really difficult. Most people forget about that. Um, and you know, we, had to, we were like a high profile, crazy tech company. And so I, I was there for, for five years through the IPO. And then, and then, you know, the, the folks over at Emergence Capital came over and came knocking on the door. And, and the interesting thing about this domain in, and my role is, which is pretty unique. While I sit on the investment committee, I help us to source deals and do due diligence, due diligence on deals. Say that ten times fast. Um, more specifically, I'm, I'm kind of like free go-to-market consulting for our portfolio companies. Um, as you, you know, most of these early stage companies, because we invest in A's and B's, we just do B2B enterprise SaaS, which is also what allowed us as a firm to hire somebody like me to do this because we're hyper focused. We just do one thing really, 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 really well. I've done it really well. Zoom, Viva, Salesforce, we were the first investors, and uh, Yammer, and Box, and ServiceMax, and Steelbrick. Pretty good list. Um, and, and so what's cool is I come in when you're a million dollars and you're a product-led you know, organization and you don't really know the go-to-market side, you know, they've got a playbook. of like, all right, here are all the things that you're going to have to tackle when you're trying to scale from a million to 10 to 50 to 100. And it, and it covers the gamut on the go-to-market side, you name it, from hiring to messaging to pricing and packaging to comp plans, you know, tech stack, et cetera. There's, there's so many wins in that spiel that you just gave. I wanna go back, <laughs> I, I wanna go back to the fuck up. I wanna go back to when you said yeah. you, you tried to run your own technology company. I would like to know, you know, what you did wrong then that you'd presumably not make those mistakes now. So anybody who's thinking about going off on their own, what are a couple of things that you screwed up? I think, I think it's important for people to hear like even the great Doug Landis screwed up at one point in time and made it out. 
made it out the other side, right? <clears throat> yeah. By the way, I've had many of screw-ups, and I'll continue to have many of screw-ups. And if I don't, then I'm not living. Uh, so I'm okay with that. And I learned, I learned more in building that company than, than ever, that I could have ever imagined in an MBA or anything else. Um, and the reality was like, look, we were, I, I think it was a combination of things. I think it was a combination of, uh, of timing. So when we were going out and trying to raise capital, it was kind of the first dot-com bubble, if you will. Um, and when we were going out and trying to raise capital, we were never able to show anybody that might give us money that we're going to give them a 10x return on their money because we basically we built an exchange for nonprofit organizations organizations to help them it's kind of like a match.com for nonprofits to help them find funding sources from like trust government agencies um the uh, uh um, large foundations etc so we're kind of that middleman we make the match and help them kind of accelerate the process and, and the problem is is so we were the market that we were serving wasn't big enough for traditional venture capital. I didn't know shit about raising money at all. Um, fortunately, we had some friends and family money and that gave us the opportunity to go raise a seed round, but largely um, with the product wasn't fully baked yet. The idea was baked, but the product wasn't built. And, um, and so I would say like, get the, figure out how to get the product built so you can test it. Um, because once you test it, it makes it a lot easier to go out and try and raise capital. But there's, People who want to go start their own company, it's a chicken and the egg scenario, right? It's like, well, I need to raise money so I can go build the product. Um, but then if I'm going to give you money, I want to kind of make sure that the product is there, which is also why if you've done this a few times, even if you failed a handful of times, um, you've learned and you're going to learn from those mistakes, right? So get the product right. Do your market analysis. Um, I think that the things that we did well is we hired really great people. So I hired a former uh, uh, head of a foundation to be our CEO. He knew everyone and he knew the language so he could kind of direct us in that way. But, but we screwed up on the technology side all day, every day. It was terrible. Just my curiosity, because this is a long time ago. We're, we're literally talking 20 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah um, totally. You know, Scott, I, know, I'm old. I, think, I think Scott was six. Um, <laughs> but no, he was a little older than that. But what was a seed round back then? Because it's very different than today. Oh, dude. I mean, five years ago, a seed round was like, what, one to maybe three million? Right. And now you get seed, seed rounds of like so, seven. So I, I just want to give context to people that seed rounds back then, is, as much as you hear about the original dot com, you know, you're talking less than a million. 250 grand. Exactly. Yeah. Our series A was like, we had, so here's, the, here's, here's where I screwed up too. Here's the other thing I got greedy. So right before the implosion of the dot-com craze, right? So I had raised, we had raised a million dollars. This is going to be like our A, late seed, whatever you're going to call it. But in our mind, it was like an A. And I thought we could raise more money, and I knew there was going to be some shifts going on. So I was pushing for two because we thought we could get to two. I had a million dollars in the bank ready to go. And so when I started pushing for two, that's when everything started to unravel. And then everybody that put their money in, because we hadn't cashed anything, so to speak, we hadn't cashed a check, we just had, we had basically signed term sheets, if you will. Um, they all pulled out. Oh, man. Everyone pulled oh, out. Dude. This is like the, uh, all I can think about is, is Bodie from Point Break just saying, go for the register, not the vault right now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love that's that. Hilarious. That's great. Cool. Yeah, you can't, you, even the, the way you try to raise now is very different. You, you could get away with raising back then with an idea. You can't really get you away totally with 
Can't no, get away no, 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 no. It's totally different. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Although, although, look, I just heard yesterday that, you know, a, a former founder that's done it twice and had two exits has an idea and, you know, got a... Yeah, got someone's like a, betting on him. That someone's like betting, betting on him. I totally agree because he's done it before, right? right? So it's like a really interesting idea. Seemingly, I mean, you can quickly do a market assessment like, wow, this is a massive market. Cool. I'm going to preempt everything, give you a $30 million Series A. Yeah. Right? Pre-product. Wow. Because I believe you can, because you have the formula, I believe you can do it again. Yeah. And the market's That's there. That's the norm for everybody listening. That's not No, it is not the norm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not. How, 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 does, how does one, what is the best way for one to evaluate who to take money from? Who to, par, who to partner with? Right. There's, uh, yeah, yeah, there's totally. horror stories all over the place about this org did this and got over yeah. on me and screwed me over here. And these people were great. But like, let's yeah. say, you know, you're just giving advice to any listener out there who might be thinking about this. Like, what are what are the top three things that somebody should look for in a partner beyond just the obvious of like, who's willing to write me a check? Totally. Totally. It, look, I will tell you, there's there's a lot of easy money out there. Um, but, but, but easy, easy money doesn't equip, is not equivalent to good money. Yeah. Easy and money to me, bad money. Yeah. 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 So the easy, um, good money to me is somebody that truly, truly is bought into you. So here's, here's two things that I've learned about the venture world as a non-traditional venture capitalist. The, the venture business is, the, is, is, we're not in the finance business. We're not in the tech business. We're in the people business. So if I'm investing in your company and your idea, Scott, I'm investing in you. Because I know over the course of the next eight to 10 years, shit's going to go sideways. Yeah. Market's gonna, markets are going to change. We're going to have to pivot. And so I'm banking on your ability to hire the right people, to keep, to keep the ship focused on what we need to be focused on to go out and, and capitalize on what's in front of us. And that's, it. that's one thing. The second thing that I, I've, I've learned in the, in the venture world is it's, it's about, it's, it, there's a ton, it's, it's, it's so much predicated on flexibility. And so what I, what I mean by that is, it's like, to me, good money is a partner that understands you and that is able to be flexible with you when it may be time that we have to pivot or we have to change direction, right? Um, it's also understanding like, we're gonna make some mistakes. We're just, we're going to. You're gonna hire people that you thought were world-class and they totally shit the bed. So they want to write cultural how, how, how do I suss that out if I'm having these these early conversations? Is it just is it just literally like the transparency? Like even the fact that you're telling me, hey Scott, you're gonna screw up. Okay. We're gonna be flexible with you. Is that transparency and open willingness to have that dialogue key? Is that one of the ways to suss it out at the beginning? I think I think look, unfortunately, venture capitalists when they're trying to sell themselves to their firm, um, they're in sales mode. Right? Just think about it. They're in sales mode. And so I think the important thing is just like if you're interviewing a sales candidate or a sales leader, you know, to come work for you, you got to do your back channeling. You got to ask, you got to ask the, the real questions like, what does partnership mean to you? Give me an example of where one of your companies was, you know, a red hot, you know, poster child and then really struggled. What did you do to help them? What yeah. specific resources can I leverage from you that can help me to fill in the areas that I'm weak? Right, because as a CEO, you're not going to be an expert in everything, and you're largely going to lean either you're going to be on the people side, you're going to be on the finance side, you're going to be on the product side, you're going to be on the go-to-market side, and so you want to be able to have a partner there that is going to is going to that that you can lean on to help you fill in some of those gaps, um, to help you recruit or interview, to help you think through 
you know, how to overcome some of the, some of the so how do you know, know, personal so psychological challenges. I mean, there's so many things that come up. You just want, you know, you, you want someone who's going to hold you accountable and challenge you, but also support you at the same time. So how do you, so I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 20 something person, right? Coming out Stanford, right. And you've been down this road before, you know how to come in and answer these questions. How do I know that, you know, the good VCs aren't, you know, are good ones and the other ones who are full of shit, because I'm willing to bet they all have to say the same stuff, right? Like, you know, they, you know, they, they, they do and they don't look, look, the thing, the, the thing is you have to go talk to people that they funded, right? So go talk to other companies that they funded, both companies that did exceptionally well and companies that maybe failed and find out the level of support that you got from them. What did you do? How often did you talk? What kind of support did they offer you? Um, um, what, what were the conversations like? What do they expect from you on a weekly, monthly, you know, quarterly basis? Uh, what were your board meetings like? Um, you know, how, when, how proactive were they uh, at reaching out to you versus reactive? Because there, there are a lot of venture capitalists that will just write a check and they just go to board meetings and they just poke holes and shit, right? They don't really add a whole lot of value. And so to me, if I were starting a company, it's like, all right, who can help me who can add the most value to where I am right now? Right? What, do you, what do you think about, um, in my experience, there's two different types of, of founders. There's the founder who keeps the executive team outside of the boardroom and away from the uh, board and the venture group. And then there's the founder or founding team that is inclusive and invites the exec executives into those meetings and those conversations and, and has that kind of conversation. Yeah, has builds that kind of relationship, right? Yep. Is that is that typical? That's been my experience. I wonder if that's a typical experience and what kind of alarm bells or red flags that might signal for for folks. So uh, you know, it's interesting. I I don't sit on many boards largely because, and sorry, I'm looking up something I wrote down in my notes, but I was I don't I don't sit on boards largely because I get so in the weeds, and I probably know more about the business than the board knows about the business. Yeah. Um, right. So, um, so it's dangerous for me to be on the board because, because I'm, I'm not going to let you get away with like, you know, painting this rosy picture of like unicorns and rainbows and be like, yeah, that's bullshit. You know, you don't have enough lead coverage and you haven't done enough capacity plan. And if we don't fix these holes, we don't fill these gaps, you're going to, you're going to have a real problem. Um, and so I think, honestly, I think it's really, really important to be inclusive of the executive team. One, to give the executive team an opportunity to up level their skills. Because presenting in front of a board is a different conversation than just presenting to your peers and the executive team. Um, and secondarily, too, I also look, the board's only job is the only job. The only thing we can really do is hire and fire the CEO. That's the only thing we can really do. I can't, I can't, again, Scott, let's say you're the CEO. I can't say, Scott, you need to go fire Richard because I don't think he's, I don't think he's cutting it. I don't think he's the right person for the role. I could say that to you, but it's totally your call. You can do yeah, whatever you want. Yeah, I was going to say bullshit because Scott's done that, but no, he's had to. <laughs> right. But so at the end of the day, you know, like as far as, as far as the board goes, the board wants real, the board wants real information. I think the challenge with most board meetings is you send out a board deck and then all you do at the board meeting is you go over the deck that everyone was supposed to look at beforehand. And what I, what I personally think is really powerful in board meetings is read the deck ahead of time come to the come to the table with a list of questions that you have yeah. that you need clarification on that you need some that you need intel on and then have a conversation with the ceo and then get the ceo out of the room 
bring in the individuals on their own without the CEO. Because I tell you what, my boss is sitting there or my boss's boss is sitting there and I'm trying to present the numbers. I am going to be so nervous, not only because I'm in front of, presenting in front of the board, but also my boss is there. And it's going to be harder for me to yeah. answer the tough questions that they may ask. Well, I, I can tell you from personal experience being in the, in the boardroom and getting asked questions and the CEO's sitting right next to me and I'm trying to figure out the right way to phrase or frame something that makes sure that I'm taking accountability, right? And also yes. doesn't, doesn't deflect <laughs> responsibility at all, doesn't make the CEO look bad. It's tough for sure. You, you know, you get sweaty points. I, I once uh, saw Kevin O'Leary speak, you know, the guy from, from Shark Tank, and he said before he ever talks to a CEO of a company that he's going to buy, he actually takes the best or longest tenured sales rep out to dinner because that person knows where all the bodies are buried. They know exactly what the revenue machine looks like, how good it is and how bad it is, which, which I think stems to this exact same conversation of yeah. how to be able to do this, you know, respectfully, but, you know, also do it, you know, uh, you know, directly, right. Without having to put all this pretense on it. So. Totally, totally, totally agree with that. I think, I think the other thing about that is um, I want, like, if you want to create a space where there's, we'll call it radical candor, if you want to create a space where everyone's being really honest and they're taking responsibility for their, their part in it, or at least you get to see if they're the kind of person, the kind of leader that will take responsibility for their, their function or their department, um, that's a great, that's a great opportunity to do that. Um, I also believe too, and this is just on board meetings and, and Gordon, one of our, our founders, our co-founders, and I have talked at great length about this, but you also need to be really clear about what kind of board meeting is this going to be? Is this going to be a tactical board meeting? We're going to get super in the weeds and like pick it like conversion ratios. Is this going to be a strategic board meeting? We're going to talk about making some short-term strategic decisions like acquisitions or key hires we need to make or up-leveling up leveling certain positions or is this a big picture long-term five-year plan let's think outside the box kind of session where we want to think like where do we want to be in five years and what do we think it's going to take to get there and i think the problem is is a lot of board meetings are not clearly identified as far as what they're going to be and so yeah. we just go through the same thing that's my take again not a prototypical venture who should own defining that should that come from the board do you want to see it from the ceo should you know if like i i can only assume that if if someone like doug was in my vc pocket i'd be like doug um you know it's our first board meeting should it be a you know am i showing them revenue like am i talking strat like you know help me doug like this goes back to what yeah, kind yeah. of do you get like you would be the first person i'd call if you were my go-to person <laughs> um, i think i mean i think largely it's a combination of it's a com it's a conversation with ceo and the board Right. Is it like, okay hey. if I'm a, if I'm a founder, right. And whether, you know, I'm six months in or two years in or four years in, is it okay for me to pick up the phone and say that to my VC? Because I could see at some point early on, you're like, yeah, I got it. Totally. But in two years I've created some false belief system that I can't ask that question. I'll look stupid. No, it's, yeah, you know, yeah, totally. yeah. PSA to the founder, by the way, don't notify your head of sales uh, at three 30 on Oh. Wednesday that you have to present at a board meeting on Thursday or Friday. True story. I've been there, had to do that. <laughs> yeah. Give them, give them uh, a heads up. So I totally so, agree with that. But do, but can a founder still feel like they should, I mean, I would hope they would because that would be part of the relationship over the first year, the second year, the third year. 
but do you ever see founders who are like, wait a minute, why didn't you call me? I would have totally walked you through this or I would have been, I'm happy to help you next time. Maybe you don't want to call them out. Like, do you still see that happening or do, do people kind of figure this out by, by now? No, I mean, I think, I think if you're a first time founder and this is your first board meeting, you're just going in there to give an update on the state of the business. And then at that meeting, you'll talk about going forward. What are we, what's our goal? How often are we going to do these? What do we do in these? What do you expect? What do you as board members need and expect from me? What do I want from you and all these meetings going forward? I think it's in that conversation you say, well, listen, tell you what, once a quarter, we're going to have one entire board meeting that is just a pure strategic long-term discussion board meeting. We'll, we'll cover a couple of the, of the logistical things like, yeah, we have to, you know, we have to agree on the minutes. We have to maybe agree on, you know, options or whatever it may be, or our fundraising, you know, plan. Um, but then beyond that, we're going to like, no, this entire board meeting is going to be set for our, you know, our one, two year goal. And then the next board, and then, and then the next quarter we'll set up aside one board meeting that's going to be for our, our longer five, 10 year goal. Right. So you, it's up to you guys to kind of define the, figure out the rhythm. You like. yeah. yeah, totally. So have you ever, have you just had curiosity, have you ever like, you know, invested in someone and like, you know, by the second board meeting, you're like, oh shit. This was not the right play, or do you got? And, and granted, and granted, you know, you, you guys learn. Had buyer's remorse, quick yeah. buyer's remorse. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Um, I, I'm gonna say, look again. I don't write checks. I don't sit on boards per se, so um, it's harder for me to to, to say that. But I will say that um, overall, the answer will be no, and that is largely because we do so much due diligence leading up to actually, you know, kind of transferring the funds, so to speak, that we know these, this, or the organization, the people at the top really, really, really well. Now, does that mean that people can change? Like once they get the, you know, the money's in the bank and all of a sudden they're like, you know, you thought we were going in this direction and they're like, screw it, we're going this way. Sure, that, that certainly can happen. And I'll tell you, as you know, from, from what I understand, we have certainly, uh, as a firm, replaced the CEO a time or two because it just wasn't a good fit anymore. Um, uh, you know, or there's some issues, or they had some personal issues, or they just capped out. Right. You know what? Like, yeah, you were the CEO to get us to 20, 30 million, but they're not really the CEO to take us public, as an example, right? And Absolutely. so, you know, that's the that's the conversation for the board and the executive team. Um, but also, if the company continues to suffer, then someone has to take responsibility for it, right? And and unfortunately, largely, that's going to be the CEO. What, what is the difference in the mindset, in your opinion, from somebody who's the you know, let's say the, the CEO who gets them from zero to 60, so to speak. And then yep. the next CEO who takes them from, you know, a hundred to 200, whatever, whatever the, the numbers yeah. are. And that, that, I think that that is the same across disciplines. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm curious what you have found to be the differentiator in the mindset of the, those two types of executives or, or leaders, founders, CEOs, that type of thing. So, I say the CEOs that can go from zero to a hundred million ITO start there are a special breed because they are acutely aware of themselves and their own strengths and weaknesses. And they are committed to their own growth and their personal growth. And they're the ones that are going to hire coaches and therapists and, you know, leadership development, uh, uh strategists they invest in themselves. Okay. They are doing everything they can to continue to grow and get better as a leader, right? Because they know growing from zero to 100 and, and growing from 100 to a billion 
is are two it requires two different skill sets largely. Um, when you're a private company, you have more you have more freedom. You've got some more you got more room to test. Um, you know, as long as the board agrees, we're like we're gonna take some money and we're gonna go try this new product, right? When you're a public company, you can't fuck around, right? And the way in which you communicate to the public markets, the way in which you 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 manage your finances, the things that really really truly matter to the public markets, um, you're so maniacally focused on. Um, it's 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 a it's a totally different business in, that you're managing and leading and running versus hey we're building a company to get there. Unless you're Elon right. Musk, he can kind of do what he wants, right? He can say what he wants publicly. He he can. It's also because he's got enough money and he doesn't give a shit, right? right. Um, but like, look, Aaron Levy had to grow to become a public company CEO. You know, um, you know, anybody that has gone through that growth has had to learn like what's involved in taking a company public, how to deal with Wall Street, how to deal with the analysts, how to deal with you know the the haters on Twitter, <laughs> right? Whatever, whatever it may yeah. be. You know, the people that don't understand your business model. Does that mean then that the people who only take it from zero to 60, like they, they don't commit to that same level of growth and, and, that, and that's it? Like that's the list? What, what, are, what are some other, is there anything else? Do they, do they dream smaller maybe? Do, do, are their goals like just not so outrageous? I'm just wondering if maybe. there's anything other than, other than that, like investment in self. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think you have got to be so, so, so totally invested in the your the customers that you're serving, right? And that has got to like that has to win over everything else. That's it's becoming more and more of a serving. popular opinion. Yeah, and 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 your desire to become a better leader is actually driven by the customers that you're serving, and your desire to continue to serve them in a way that is better than you've ever done before. Um, Eric Uni is a perfect example of this, right? We didn't know he was going to be a multi-billion-dollar, you know, CEO. We certainly had, um, we certainly thought he could, but we also knew from, you know, when you invest in Series A and you've got a million in revenue, to going public when you're a hundred million in revenue, usually at least, if not more, that's a ton of change, right? And 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 evolution. But the one thing that is consistent with Eric, um, as he grew and developed is he was maniacally focused on his customer's happiness from day one. And that's what drives him. And it continues to drive him today. And so like, he has an ethos about him, which is like, my customers come first. And um, I would argue, argue like, Aaron Levy has like a thirst for knowledge um, that, that he can, that he's trying to garner from his customers. And it's insatiable and it like drives him crazy. So I read books and he meets with people and he's like, and he tweets all this because you can just see his brain working in that, re in that regard. Right. Those are just examples of people who went from, you know, Hey, I'm just starting a company to now I'm a public company CEO and, and what's, what's been driving them. And, and, and what about what's still driving you after all these years? I mean, we were, <laughs> we were, we were chatting offline and you were just talking about how many miles you already put on, you know, your frequent flyer program this year and stuff. Yeah. And I'm over here going, yeah. good grief, you know, this guy's, he doesn't have, he also doesn't have, he can barely get on a plane once every month. Right. Yeah, that's fair. It's fair. Yeah. We don't have kids. Um, so that's, that's fortunate. I have a wife that loves me. But there's something, the road. But there's something <laughs> still 
there's something still yeah. you're like it, are of you, course. You know, this is this has been a really heavy week for a lot of people with the death of kobe bryant and, and people are i think are really reflecting and taking time to think about their legacy and their impact and what it all means is are you are you at that at that stage of, of your life right now where you're thinking about those kind of things a lot um i think so for me what drives me is is kind of threefold first and foremost what drives me is my ultimate my, my desire to be helpful um and to and in that is, is an element of like giving back i just I love what I do because at the end of the day, I get to be helpful almost 24-7. Sometimes 24-7 is true, but um, like being able to share what I've learned, what I've experienced, um, what I'm continuing to learn every single day is, is a total joy. Like doing podcasts to me is so fun because it's like, all right, cool. Let's talk about stuff that I've learned or maybe things that I don't know that I'm really curious about. Um, and for me, it's like this it's just insatiable desire to continue to just be helpful um, or to help other people. Um, that's f- fulfilling to me. Um, and, and where I get sidetracked is, you know, anytime you're ever in a funk, this is for me, but also for most human beings, anytime you're ever in a funk and you just like, you just can't really get out of your own headspace, go help someone else. Yeah. <laughs> go help somebody else. And right then, it will remind you of your humanity. It will remind yeah. you of what's important. And you'll, rem- and you'll be reminded of, of the joy that you feel when somebody else, you know, has a deep-seated sense of gratitude and, and appreciation for you giving your time, money, resources, whatever it may be. Um, and so to me, that really drives me. The other thing that really drives me is I'm also an insatiable learner. And in this role, because we invest in new companies every year, I'm constantly meeting new individuals with incredible ideas who are trying to save the, change the world and change the way the world works. And um, that's super fascinating. So constantly being, um, you know, mentally stimulated also because the world of venture is new to me and I've only been in now for three years, I'm still learning a ton about what it actually means to be an investor and how to pick companies and how to, how to help, how to provide help for companies where and when they may need it, you know? And then, and then I think the last thing is, is, you know, kind of to your point is I don't feel like I have, um, I haven't. So if this is like, here's where you know you can leave your legacy at the tip at the top of this arc, if you will, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's in me, there's still something pushing me to go, what is this? What do if I wanted to be, you know, what do I want to be remembered for? I feel like you know what I'm that not is? quite there yet. Do you know what that is? Do you do you you don't have to share it, but like do you know what that place looks like? That that precipice <clears throat> that, or um, the achievement or what you have left to do or will, there, or will, will you ever is, is that a mythical place will it yeah, just yeah. that's it dude it's a great it's a great question and we could we could pontificate about this the journey is you know it's not the destination and this is not really a destination per se it is the journey to get there but i feel like um there are definitely some bigger things on the bigger yeah. things on the horizon it doesn't it has nothing to do with leaving emergence i'm gonna i'm staying here until you know i'm decided not i'm deciding not to work anymore but um, um I, yeah there's I, definitely I, some bigger I, things coming I resonate, I resonate a lot with, you know, just trying to kind of give back and help as many people as possible. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I struggle with is like figuring out who to say no to. I get questions all the time, every, you know, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And I, I would love to find a way to help everybody, but I, I can't. Yeah. There's not simply, yeah. simply not enough time. 
and you mentioned earlier like some of the Twitter haters or whatever, like I get hate mail sometimes on LinkedIn. I swear to God, I just got one yesterday. It's just like, you know, somebody, somebody asked me for, for help and I was like, sure, you know, here's my calendar link, like see what you can find. <clears throat> and I would assume that they would book a meeting. They didn't, they didn't book a meeting. What they did do is apparently they sent me an invitation to connect on LinkedIn. Well, I have like 2000 of those I can't do anything with. And I didn't see it. <laughs> then I get hate mail. That's like, you know what? Fuck you. You, you said that you want to help me. You don't even willing to connect with me. I'm not taking a call with somebody. Right. So I, I'm, I'm at a place still where like those things affect me more than they should. One of the things I need to, to work on is how to just let go of that kind of thing. But how do I, how do you, how do yeah. you decide who to help? How do you decide who to say no to? That's a great question. And first of all, anybody out there that's going to send and send hate mail for someone someone who can't actually create the time to help you fuck off right. um it's just excuse my french and i apologize for being so direct but the reality is is like look we're coming from a place where we want to be helpful but we can't right and you know we shouldn't be punished for that my my two cents yeah um we're gonna do everything we possibly can and things are going to come up and we may say that we can help and then next thing you know we just we can't and that's okay it's part of it's part of just being human, like things come up. And, and, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess the, the key is to not, first of all, not for any of us to not take it personally. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, especially if you're getting like, you know, people who are, who are angry or upset with you, it's like, you know, for you personally, it is not try and take it personally, but also be like, Hey, listen, just, I, I, also for that I, person, just, I wish you, person. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But like, I would also wish that you would respect the fact that like I'm a human being and I'm spread really thin. And so maybe I'll learn from not saying yes to too many things. Maybe I shouldn't have said yes, I'll be helpful to you. Maybe yeah. I, instead I'll say, I'll do my best. Let me know, you know, let's see if we can work something out. Um, and because in that way, you're not locking yourself into where yeah. you feel guilty, right? Um, and you're not also setting up some false expectations to where they're expecting this and you're only able to get this. So I think that's an important lesson for all of us. For me, good news is, given the fact that, I mean, what you and I do is very, largely very similar. Yeah. I, I have this umbrella of emergency over me. So my first, my first responsibility is to our portfolio. portfolio. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that's it. They take up all my time. And if I have the opportunity to do things outside of this, that, um, then, uh, then, then I will do that. But it's kind of, kind of be stacked ranked in terms of what's being asked, what kind of, what's my time requirement, um you know what, what what and then and then like could this potentially take me away from being able to do something else with my one of our portfolio companies these are all the things that i have to assess right yeah. because i have a fiduciary responsibility uh, at the end of the day to my lps right and to my gps and to my portfolio company so i kind of already have a hierarchy built for me which is nice um unfortunately for you you've got your own natural hierarchy which is whatever you decide you know kind of finger in the air um and so it's easier for me to push back and be like sorry i can't yeah. because i have other things you know other things going on what do you what do you do outside of work like i know you you're passionate and you you know you're, you know you serve like what, what do you do besides you know work that surf? get passion they give you passion? Surf. yeah that's surf. it you <laughs> no 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 i do i do lots of other things um yeah i mean I besides surfing, 
I play tennis. I play soccer. Um, <laughs> I clearly have built a reputation of buying and rebuilding, remodeling houses and then selling them not so much to flip, but just because I'm insane. Uh, <laughs> I, I hate it now. <laughs> like my, yeah. Um, you know, I, I speak a lot, a lot of events, and it isn't so much just about, um, you know, it, it's not just for our portfolio companies. Um, you know, I will gladly come speak at almost any conference, as long as there's not a conflict, um, because I love, that is to me, is, that is a gift. I can get up on stage in front of 10,000 people, no fear whatsoever, and walk out there and, and have a blast. Um, I'm also a professionally trained actor, so I love it. Um, so I do, I'll do a lot of like one-off public speaking, storytelling, you know, um, uh, uh, um, core sales fundamentals, brown bag training sessions all day, every day. I also advise a ton of little startups that are trying to get to the point where they can go raise money from us. So they're like, hey, I got this idea, where, you know, which direction should I go in? Um, so I'll, I'll do that as much as I can, um, kind of to Scott's point, I don't always have the, the capacity yeah. and, and if it starts doing cringe on some of our companies, I kind of, you know, politely or, or, or respectfully say like, you know, yo, I, it's probably not a good idea because we've already made investments in these areas. Um, and I'm not an idea stealer. Um, I've got two, two quick questions for you, Doug. Yeah, one, one is fun and one hopefully will educate the listeners. What, what's your favorite surf spot and surf trip that you've, that you've gone on? Um, I mean, my favorite first the surf spot is, is Pleasure Point because I haven't had a house down there. <laughs> I don't walk to At home base. To five home, different breaks. That's almost cheating. Your home break doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a totally, that's a totally fair point. Um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, Uluwatu in Bali in Indonesia is like, um, uh, you know, Changu in, in Bali is, I mean, largely because the water's just ridiculously warm. It's super beautiful. The scene yeah. is beautiful. The water's incredible. Like, yeah, sign me up. I haven't got to, haven't got to Bali yet. Here, here, here's the last question that I want to ask. <clears throat> I get asked for advice all the time about stock options and equity and what it all means. Whew. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the reality is, like, I would wager that 95% of, empl of employees who are given options of some sort, don't have a freaking clue what they mean or what they're, what they're worth or anything like that. Yep. What, what, what is something that um, employees can do, should do to educate themselves and have a realistic picture of what they're stepping into? I had a conversation with uh, a young lady not too long ago who had 500 options that she had been given and the, the, the ruse was that she was going to be a millionaire after these. And I busted out a calculator and showed her, you know, what price per share they would have to be at some point in time in order for that to happen. And then I showed her the list of companies that I could find who had share prices that high. Right. So can you, can you give, you know, regular old yeah. early employees who are in this kind of stuff, like, what do they need to know, man? Totally. How do they prevent themselves from just getting oversold? Sure. Um, and again, this is my point of view um, perspective. Uh, the first thing I will say is um, a lot of people get really wrapped around the axle when it comes to equity um, with this idea of dilution. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to go out and raise more money and I'm going to get diluted. And the truth is, is unless you own 
a percentage or more of the company, dilution doesn't really affect you. If you've got 500 shares or 5,000 shares or 50,000 shares, that's what you have. If 50, you're, not, you're not losing those 50,000 shares. You're not going from 50,000 shares to 25,000 shares. So you have those number of shares. Now, granted, if you have a percent or two or three or four or 5% of the company and you raise money, then yeah, you're going to go from 5% to 4% to 3% to 2%. But you're going to have 2% of a $100 million company is worth a heck of a lot more than 5% of a $5 million company, right? So just one thing, just re remember the fact that dilution as an individual contributor, even as a manager, even as a leader, unless you're at the executive level. Unless, really, you're, unless you're a senior executive, don't worry yeah. about dilution. Don't worry about dilution because people get really wrapped up on that. And they go like, ah, no way, it's not going to be worth as much. The other thing that's important is, and I tell you what, I'll send you guys some links that you can send to all of your listeners, Perfect. which can help you do a quick calculation as to what are my options worth because there are things that you need to understand of like you know strike price how much they were when you got hired was the stock at 25 cents or a dollar right you know how many shares are outstanding um you know like how much um equity they plan to continue to put in the option pool as they go out and raise more money so that's a so then your percentage your 500 shares becomes a percentage of that and it's, it's a simple calculation there's there's some websites that they'll do it for you automatically you just dump in the number of shares you dump in the strike price and boom tells you what it's potentially worth but at the end of the day as an individual contributor the best way to consider this when it comes to equity is like how many how many number of shares am i going to get what is the um, what is the conversion of those? Which is typically it's over a four-year period, um, right? And so it's like if I'm going to get 100,000 shares over the course of four years, it's 25,000 shares a year. The thing that's important to know is should I buy them, or should I wait until I fully invested them? If you feel like the company is like a rocket ship and you know they're going to go public or there's going to be a significant exit, then it makes sense to buy them. Buy them early because there's a real tax implications for buying them early when the stock is, you bought them, you know, you were, you were given the shares when the strike price was a dollar. They went out and raised money and now the strike price is $5. You get a $4 gain. If you wait until the company goes public and they go public at $24, you now have a $23 gain. That's a huge tax bill you're going to have to pay versus the $4 gain. But you also have to have some money in order to buy them. So just remember that there's some, there's some complexity around that. Right. And so, and, and I, honestly, I just wouldn't get wrapped up in anything other than the number of shares and what you think the company's you know, value to the public markets might be. Like how many people would consider Box a almost a billion dollar revenue company that is, that is cash flow efficient, that is cash flow positive. I think they are again. Um, and their, their stock price is $17. Nobody in their right mind thinks that that's, real, that's realistic. When you look at Okta, Okta is $110, right? And so, like, who would have thought that? And you don't know. And the public markets are all wishy-washy. I did. Right? I put so, stock in Okta. I'm doing very well That there. was smart. That was yeah. super smart. But I tell you what, everybody that bought stock in Box are like, you guys suck. I've lost money. And I'm like, I know. Don't blame me. But, yeah. you know, like, so you, so you never really know. Um, and so here's the thing. The safe bet is, like, if you're getting your stock at less than $5, you got to bet that the stock, once it goes public, will be somewhere around 20. And do you have enough of, uh, do you have enough shares if it's a, you know, 15 to $20 gain to be something meaningful? Right. If you don't, then guess what? It's just a bonus. Yeah. Right. Yep. Good advice. Good advice.
So, so this is sort of our, our, our last question. We sort of turn it around um, uh, on our podcast, which is, you know, what can we do for Doug? How can we help you solve something um, big or little, whatever it is? Like, how can we yep. be support to you? Because you, you've given us your time and your expertise and your knowledge. So we want to pay it forward <laughs> back to you. Amen. Amen. Pay it, pay it forward, pay it back. Um, look, I, first and foremost, I, I just ask that you guys keep doing what you're doing because I love it. Um, and I love what you're doing to the, the, the broader go-to-market community. Um, uh, I think one day you need to, you need to like, think about this whole idea of surf and sales because I think there's going to be a massive shift to revenue instead of just sales. And we're going to start to see uh, a blurring of lines in sales and customer success and account management. And to be at the end of the, and even marketing for that matter, it's all going to be revenue. Um, we already so some, yeah, no, it's, already, it's already starting to happen. I've been talking about it for a year now. I've been working on a new book called Revenue Culture, um, like how to actually change the entire culture of your organization to be more revenue focused versus sales and product focused. Um, I'm also working on another book right now all on storytelling called The Narrative, um, which is, that's probably going to come out first because I do so much work around storytelling uh, and narrative building. And, um, you know, so, I mean, I'd say just if my, my only ask to you and your entire audience is just keep Help, keep helping to elevate the whole profession uh, in the world of revenue um, and everybody on the go-to-market side because um, we need it. You know, we, this, this world is only getting more complex. Yeah. You know, with the amount of products and information and everything that's happening, it's like, just, yeah, we need it. Done. We'll definitely do that. Definitely. Thank you, Doug, man. That was awesome. Really appreciate you coming on. And as always, a pleasure to see you. And Of course. See you soon, Doug. Of course. Look forward to it, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Bye-bye.